<clears throat> Once again, we're in Hebrews chapter 2. Before we begin, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious and kind Heavenly Father, in, uh, in the name of Jesus and for the sake of Christ, we come to you, Lord, uh, with our prayers and petitions, but we offer first our praise and worship, Lord, and we pray that this morning that you would receive our worship and that it be uh, truly worthy of such a great high priest as Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you're honored and you're glorified and that we ascribe to you all of those things which you deserve, Lord, and that we come uh, before you in humility, Lord, and in brokenness over sin, that you would offer forgiveness and that that forgiveness be wrought in Jesus Christ and that we see it truly for what it is, that we see uh, the perfect blood of the spotless lamb as a propitiation for the sin of mankind. And Lord, we just thank you for the wonderful grace and mercy that has been given to us, Lord, that we may believe that Christ is the Messiah, that he is both human and that he is God and that he is the perfect and only and final sacrifice. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, given your spirit that we may understand these truths. And Lord, for those who may be here today and may open the, the word, Lord, we just pray that the reality of Jesus Christ as Savior would ring so true today in, in order to bring uh, one into a proper response to the gospel and to bring them under obedience to your word, Lord, that we would see sinners uh, fall upon their face before the, the great and powerful King Jesus and admit that they are sinners and that they are worshiping now the Lord of Lord and Kings of Kings. Lord, we just pray that uh, people this this day, including myself, Lord, would see sin as uh, the wretched treachery that it is, Lord, uh, that we would look to Christ and that we would be changed by it, Lord, and that it would not pass uh, through our ears and and be ignored, Lord, but that uh, instead of neglecting that we would embrace so great a salvation as you have provided. We pray for discernment, Lord, and wisdom and for knowledge of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Last week we ended with verse 13, but I think it's very uh, befitting of us to look back as we move to verse 14 and see just what has happened uh, from verses 10 to 13. What we saw uh, in Hebrews chapter 1 is Jesus Christ uh, being described uh, and, and revealed to the church and reminded uh, so that the church would not forget that Jesus Christ is supreme, that he is the one in whom God speaks. He is the one who is appointed heir of all things, that he is the, the glory of God, the radiance, it says, the exact representation, the exact imprint of his nature, that he's seated on the right hand, that he is above angels, he's not to be compared uh, to created being, that he is the beginning he is the end. He is the author of salvation as we move into uh, chapter 2 and that we see that the Hebrew people are reminded in this epistle not to neglect the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. This means not to neglect the salvation that comes by grace. Uh, instead, to forsake that salvation that they thought they had by works, which was 
no salvation at all. Forsake those things and cling fast to the cross. Hold fast to Jesus Christ for he is the only salvation. A salvation of grace, a salvation of mercy, a salvation of forgiveness of sin for uh, repentant sinners who believe in Christ. And then we see how Christ fulfills what was spoken of even back in Psalm chapter 8. And we see the references uh, from 5 to verse 8 there in Hebrews chapter 2. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. All of these things speaking of uh, one who is of human nature. And then it says, and you, are cra- you have crowned him with glory and honor that even mankind should put on display the likeness and the image of Christ and the image of God, as Brother Pat said, that we're made in His image, and that these things that He has created are appointed uh, for us to have a dominion over and subjection to. And then we see that man cannot do that because man has forsaken the created order in the fall of Adam, that man would be head over the woman, that she would be uh, the one who is over the beast. And we see that created order that God being the ultimate head and it has been flipped upside down. Therefore, no man has had in subjection under his feet all of these things until we come to Jesus Christ. And what we have is a Savior who is able to fulfill everything that no other man can. A Savior who is able to do what no other man can. A Savior who is not willing to do what every other man has been willing to do. And that's sin against God. We see that Christ has in subjection those under His feet. That His enemies become His footstool. That He has conquered Death, And we're reminded of this. And then when we get to verse 10, we see why Christ has done all of these things. It is not just to uh, merely put on display his power, but it is that so he is glorified because he is saving mankind. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory. How does Christ bring sons to glory? Because he's bringing sons to himself. He is the glory. We saw it in chapter 1. He is bringing sons to himself. Now that means that we can't find the path on our own. We can't choose to live a righteous life apart from Jesus Christ. We can't find the proper road map to salvation because there is none unless it is in Jesus Christ. He is bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvations. It said this is what God is doing through the person of Christ through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And we've spent two weeks talking about what that means for Christ. To be able to unashamedly call us brethren, the church, the saved of Christ. It says, I will proclaim your name to the brethren. This is what Christ has done in his ministry. This is what Christ is continuing to do to the gospel. He's reconciling men to God through the power of the word, through the power of his spirit, showing them that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and he's proclaiming the name of God as it's never been proclaimed. He's leading men as no other earthly priest has ever done, as no pastor can do, as no other but King Jesus could do. And he says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, Christ leading in all ways. And what we have 
as we continue, it says, and I will begin to put my trust. And again, I will put my trust in him. This is Christ trusting in God as he knows not the hour during his earthly ministry, as he knows not what is happening, but he's trusting the will of God and he's trusting the perfect work of God that has been decreed before the earth began and before it was created. And he says, and behold, I am the children whom God has given me, declaring the truths of what we see all throughout the book of John, all the, the times that Christ refers to his people as those sheep that have been given to him by God and what we have is a consistent overarching statement from Hebrews chapter 1 to chapter 2 that Jesus Christ is both man and God and that Jesus Christ is prophet priest and king like no other because there is none like him there is no God formed before him nor shall there be after him he knows not one Then we arrive at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. I think this is monumental in understanding chapter 2 because chapter 2 began like this for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it what have we heard we have heard that jesus christ is bringing sons to glory he is not ashamed he is proclaiming the name he is praising he is trusting god and he is with the children that god has given him worshiping and what we have is this statement that begins with, therefore. This particular verse serves to tie the Savior, Jesus Christ, to the brethren as they are described in verse 12. This verse shows what Christ has done in his humanity, in his humanity that cannot be separated from his deity, saying, I will proclaim your name, to my brethren. I, in the midst of the congregation, will sing your praise. And even before that, to those the same, named in verse 10, where it says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and through whom who are all things, and bringing many sons to glory. The perfect, uh, the perfecter, and the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, what we have here is Christ being molded and really what we have is is the gospel being molded before our eyes showing us what christ is doing for his brethren the text begins with therefore and anytime that we see the word therefore many people have been taught to ask this question when seeing therefore what is it therefore when you see therefore you can always ask that question what is it therefore why is it written it means for as much for as much as everything that has been listed from verse 10 to 13 for this reason so we see or since these things are true or because these things are an evidence because these things are a reality and it describes what is being told there because we might understand it in this manner because the children Share in flesh and blood. That's really what is being said. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, because they share in flesh and blood, 
we may see and we may now understand the reality of the church and who she is in Christ. These children are to be understood as these brethren who have been described in the previous verses as the church universal, those belonging to Christ, the bride of Christ, those who are adopted. And that is the message beginning in verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Those everyone being those children who share in flesh and blood. The children of God. It's very interesting that we would understand it, that everyone means every child, and that is not the children of just any household, but that's the children in the family of God, whereby we see that there is only one head, and that is Jesus Christ. What a glorious message this truly is of Christ, a glorious message of a glorious Savior. These verses cause us to live over and over again the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the point. So that we don't neglect this great salvation, this great salvation that comes at the message of the gospel. We're being verse after verse reminded of the gospel. But we do see him made lower than the angels because of suffering. That he might taste death for everyone. And then we see that he is... uh, He who is sanctified is sanctified by God through the uh, Son, Jesus Christ. He's calling them brethren. He's proclaiming the reality that he has redeemed those so that they may call him brother, so that they may call God father. We're living over and over again the gospel. This is the Christ who has set us free and who has brought salvation, and he has delivered his people from sin and death and the reality that we see from verses 9 to 11 is that this is the salvation the only salvation that has ever been a true salvation sometimes things seem like we've been saved you may you know be in a car wreck and an airbag may temporarily save you or you may be uh, on a ship and it go down and a lifeboat may save you but the truth is that's just temporary but what we see here is a picture of true salvation because it saves a man for eternity this is a salvation where God is sovereign and man can neither impede or prevent the salvation from happening the flesh is powerful but the flesh It's very weak in regards to the Spirit. The Spirit of God is more powerful than the flesh, and we see that. We see that through Christ's suffering. And as we realize that the flesh can neither impede nor prevent, we see likewise man can neither assist nor usher himself or anyone else to salvation. The Almighty God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is this very same God who of His own will... Not because of your will or their will or my will, but of his own will, he has procured salvation for all who will be saved. And he has done so by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, as the text says, that he might be the only one who is perfect because he is God and then he's made lower than the angels. He is the only one who is now sufficient 
as a sacrifice and he's the only fitting propitiation because he's the only perfect man and because man must pay the sin debt. You know, Brother Pat said something this morning that in God's infinite wisdom has a lot to do with the gospel that we see today. He was describing the children of Israel in the Passover and how they would take this lamb that was described to them. They didn't decide what would be the the Passover lamb. They didn't decide that there would be a lamb. And in that I I see the, the sovereignty of God in salvation because at this time as this was a picture of the lamb who is Jesus Christ to come, as this is a picture of salvation in the Old Testament, this is a picture pre-incarnate Christ of what is going to happen, God says, this will be the method by which I save you. Man didn't decide, well, I'll tell you what, God, how about this? Let's just slaughter a lamb and let's paint the doorpost and things like that. That wasn't the... Man listened to God. And God said who will be or what will be the sacrifice. And then you see something else in that and that these people would go and they would slaughter this lamb and they would paint as they were just, uh, told to paint. But why did they do that? It's the reality of the Spirit. That the Spirit testifies that you better be doing this because this is the only salvation. Why did they do it? Because they believed that God was true in every man a liar. They believed the Word of God so intently there was a witness being born to them that you better listen to the voice from heaven because He is the only one that can save. If they did not Understand If we do not understand salvation, we can look at the Old Testament and see it that even we would not believe and we would not trust in Jesus Christ if there is not a witness telling us this is the only salvation. There was a witness being born among the people of Israel that you better listen to this God of heaven. He demands a perfect sacrifice. And he describes the perfect sacrifice. And not only does God describe for us what is the sacrifice, this is where we understand that we are sinners and we need righteousness because God in the person of Christ is describing perfect righteousness. We don't get to define that. God does. And he's describing this perfect righteousness. He's describing this lamb. And not only is he describing the lamb, but he must provide the lamb because we can't make it. We can't create it. We can only taint it with these human hands. And therefore we see that Christ, as we're studying here, verse 14 in the gospel, and this so great salvation that he is the only sufficient sacrifice and the only propitiation. And it comes from the sovereign will, the sovereign saving God. The text says that the children of God are sharing in flesh and blood. And this is a reality of what I've just described. How are these children partakers or sharers, in your translation, of flesh or in flesh and blood? Well, this, I believe, is a great metaphorical embrace of human nature. That means that by sharing in these two, the flesh and the blood, the nature of self-satisfaction and sin is revealed. Children of God, they're sharing in this nature of sinfulness. Flesh and blood. Flesh being that sin that drives us and the blood being that 
which is carrying life, but is wilting away without Christ. And this is that self-satisfaction. This is that sin. When we see the morality of human nature, that is, when we see the limited existence of a human being, we also see that do that sin is death. And that is what causes that limited life, that morality, or mortality, excuse me. For in our fallen state, we have no good standing with God. Man is in desperate need of reconciliation. The reality, again, is as it was such a, a perfect picture painted, the children of Israel, they stood in need of salvation. They knew that God was bringing this plague, that God was bringing forth this condemnation, and they better do something, but they couldn't. They couldn't provide a sacrifice. And what does God do? He says, here's the sacrifice. Trust in it. This is the reality that man is desperately, desperately wicked. And he needs reconciliation. It can only come by blood and it can only come by the righteousness of God. The reality is that you may have more money than your neighbor. You may have more property. You may have better cars than your friends. You may have more expensive and more valuable things in this life. But there is an all too realistic equality while we remain in the flesh. And that is why you may have more stuff and better stuff than your neighbor. We all have a multitude of sin. There's the reality. It's being described. We have a multitude of sin and the list and the manifest of my sin before God is a numberless and it's an infinite document. That God will have before him. And as the judgment approaches. We better see this for how it is. That uh, we may have these wonderful things. And we may think that we have lived the perfect life. But before God is a manifest of our sin. There's a document with everything listed. And as he looks. If one line is filled out. There's enough for death. We have a great need. For the gospel. We have a great need for a Jesus Christ. Are we ready? Can we be spared? All men, all mere men, that is, since Adam, are nothing more than a reproach before God. Yet he is powerful, his grace is abundant, and his grace should not be given in vain, but it should be received with gratitude. It should be received with reverence. For this is the very grace of God that is in Jesus Christ and it's demonstrated as the salvation and life in his name is given to sinful man. Whereby it we may put off corruption. We may be made pure. We may come intimately to know this Jesus Christ. Consider this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 it's described in this way. We then as workers together with him beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. 
For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. By pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report or good report as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open to you. Our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. And as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Almighty. Isn't that interesting as we consider verse 14? Children sharing in flesh and blood, children sharing in sin, and then in this Second Corinthians chapter 6, we see the provision of God. And what we see is by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost. All of these things are reality for the believer, and yet they come not from the believer. They're derived from Christ. And He is separating. And that's exactly what is being said in the previous verses for both He who is sanctifies and those who are sanctified. We have the description of Christ and the brethren. Those who are being separated. Those who are commanded, don't touch the unclean. Here they are. Flesh and blood. The reality is, therefore since the children share in flesh and blood, therefore since... There are those in desperate need of salvation. There is a, a love for sin, but yet an even greater love of Christ that combats sin. He himself likewise partook of the same. The text goes on to say, we're nothing but sinners. 
yet shall we be his sons and daughters. Children of the living God, nonetheless still sinners while on earth, yet his. None more concise about this same topic than John in chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him to them gave he the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name who were born not of the blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of God. That is the reality of verse 14. The desperate need of sinners. The inability of sinners to even repent, to even believe. Yet the Spirit is working and bringing to life the truths of Jesus Christ and the gospel. These are the rights sealed with the blood of Christ. That we may become children of the living God. Rights sealed with the blood of Christ. That says partakers of such have been called by God's sovereign will alone. They have been grafted by God's hand alone. They have been pardoned by God's work through Jesus Christ alone and they have been redeemed by His blood alone. That sounds very wonderful and it is. And then we see yet another Reality, as we look one verse previous in John chapter 1 verse 11. He came to his own and those who were his own received him not. You know, for many years I would look at this passage and because John does such great work showing us the, the human nature of Christ and then the deity of Christ... I took this passage as, well, this is speaking of Christ coming to the Hebrew people and they received him not. I, I took this for such a temporal reality that he came into this group of people and they didn't take him. They pushed him. We see that they sought to throw stones. They sought to play, lay hands on him. They sought to kill him. And I took it as this uh, finite group of people. But the reality is there's a, a greater spiritual inference from this passage, he came unto his own, and those who were his own received him not. I think what that passage is really describing is the fact uh, that man is unable to believe, that man is unable to trust, which is exactly what we've seen throughout the entirety of the Hebrews. Christ came to his own people. His own people, those who God had said, These are your sheep. And they said, that's not the Christ. The reality is that every man, when he hears of Christ, says, that's not my Messiah. That's not my Savior. That's a joke. They didn't receive him. The reality is that man receives Christ through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Through regeneration, may we now see that this is the saving Christ. May we now say, yes, this is the Lamb that God has said placed before you and that is covered by His blood, the sins and transgressions of man. By this reality, may we believe that this is now the Christ. We would not receive Him, but His will was imposed, that His sovereignty reigns over us, and it says, I am the Christ, you will bow and you will confess. 
The reality is that it's a wonderful thing that he would do this now. And people say, oh, the God of the Bible, the true God, would not make any man to believe. But the reality is that he says in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. What makes you think that he'll do it in the end and he doesn't do it now? What makes you think that he'll make the unbeliever say that he is the Lord, that he is the King, that he is the Messiah, and that he doesn't do it even now? Praise God that his will is so much stronger than mine and that his spirit is so much more powerful than my flesh. When Christ came, no one willingly received him. No one willingly trusted him. No one considered him worthy of worship, nor should they see him as the Son of God. There's the truth that there must be the testimony of the Spirit. There must be regeneration. This is what makes faith and repentance possible. Excuse me. Man, children described here of flesh and blood, of sin and death. That is what man is made up of. Children of sin, children of disobedience, lost sons of Satan without God's sovereign will. And yet what we see in that is a reason to worship God. From Hebrews chapter 1 forward. From Genesis chapter 1 to Maps. That God is so gracious. God is so loving. God is so kind. God is so just. God is so merciful that he saves some. With the text thus far, we see man in the likeness of Adam. All sinful, all without hope, without righteousness, with no hope of salvation. But notice the next portion. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He himself likewise also partook of this same. What did Christ do? When he came and partook of this same flesh and blood. Here we have Jesus coming to his predestined sons, to those elect, those called according to his purpose. They naturally reject, they naturally despise God, and that is the fact. There's no other way to explain it. Flesh just opposes righteousness. They despise God, and this must mean that in turn they despised Christ, for He is God. How could it be any other way? Jesus is God, so of course man must, as they do with God, oppose Him as well. What does our Savior the Christ now do? He partakes of the same. He, being conceived of the Holy Spirit, is now robed in human flesh. Scriptures say the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came as man and Jesus came for man and Jesus came to redeem man. Does anyone want to say amen to that? Why would God do such a thing? Why? Why put on this 
sinful flesh. Every man before has seen corruption. Every man has seen tumult. Every man fear. Every man destruction. Why would God do such a thing? Sinful man such as myself, such as Brandon, James and Pat, Ken, Charlie, he's not here, but he's sinful too. Why would God do this? Do you remember the quote from the Psalms? What is man that you remember him? Well, the son of man that you're concerned about him. We've seen in so many ways how this spoke to, in, in its original context, to man as he is created. And then we see the reality of the fulfillment in Christ uh, as it speaks of him in the Hebrews. But then we can take it uh, and peel it back, so to speak, and separate the two statements. What is man that you remember him? What is sinful man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him. And now we can see that as Jesus Christ. So we could even see it. The, the both speaking of mere man. The both speaking of Christ. And then we can separate them and see one speaking of mere man and one speaking of Christ. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned? God is concerned about the son of God, Jesus Christ. Because through the son of God... He may show His power and glory and He may be exalted. He may be glorified. He may be worshipped. And that is why He's willing to remember man. For His glory. Christ has come to do what no other man could. So He Himself partook of the same. No other man could offer us righteousness. And if they could, it wouldn't be the righteousness of God. It wouldn't be perfect righteousness. No one else... It's perfect. No one else is spotless. If you've ever sinned, just one time you were unworthy. You have nothing to give. Jesus partook of the same flesh and the same blood that he might perfect it. That he might sanctify it. Through suffering. Through obedience. That he might save this very same flesh. All which was sent before him, Christ is saving because he does not fail. Who else could do this? And I'll tell you, no one with a true understanding of sin, if we have a, a real grasp of what sin is, none of us would be willing to take on flesh. None of us would be willing to take on flesh except Jesus Christ. If you knew the reality of sin, if you knew the corruptions of the flesh, if you know that you were driving yourself to hell by putting on flesh, you wouldn't put it on if you had the power to do so. But Christ did it. He knew that Tim's flesh is sinful, that Tim's flesh is headed to hell, and yet he swapped with me. He imputed to me his righteousness and took on that sickening flesh. No one but Christ. Christ's purpose in taking on this flesh was that he would take on the humiliation and the suffering and death of the cross. That he would bear for you and I the shame and penalty of sin 
And by doing so, through his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. That through his death, he defeats Satan. Satan wants us to die. And he wants us to die without Christ. How does God thwart Satan and the power given him? He takes away the sting of death is what the text tells us. He enables us by the Spirit to live in righteousness. To begin to put off the corruptions of the flesh by blanketing us sinners in His righteousness. Simply put upon once and for all the truly saving righteousness of Christ. By truly receiving this righteousness, this Christ Jesus who is Lord, sin's dread sway may be diminished until it is once and for all abolished at the consummation. Perfection in Christ is what we see. Perfection by Christ is what we see. And perfection and righteousness for the sake of Christ. we look back all of this is really defined for us verses 6 through 8 but one is testified what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you're concerned about him you have made him for a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor and you have appointed him over the works of your hands and you have put all things in subjection under his feet This is the fulfillment provided in Christ Jesus. This is the very essence of every line, of every text of Scripture, of every verse, of every chapter, of every book. And this is the reality and the truth behind every word written in the epistle to the Hebrews. The message, if I could condense it, is the everlasting Christ made flesh and crucified for redemption of mankind. Jesus Christ, with virgin mother, then Jesus Christ, our holy brother, and Jesus Christ, there is no other. That's the message from Hebrews from the beginning to the end, and we'll see it in the, the weeks to come. There's the message of Jesus taking that same flesh and blood in order to save man and not just to save man that's just the the foregone conclusion of Jesus taking on flesh and blood that man would be saved but the reality is that if man is saved if you are saved if any of you are saved the reality is that you are saved to worship and serve Jesus Christ there's no other reason it's not for eternal life it's not so that People will esteem you highly because you're a member of the church or because you're part of uh, the government, so to speak, or, or the leadership of the church. It's not for any other reason. It's not because when you have hard times, the church will help you. That's not the reason to be with Jesus Christ. The reason to be with Jesus Christ is that we would do what we're created to do. The question today is, are you worshiping Jesus Christ? Are you worshiping this flesh? Are you worshiping these things that are temporal? 
Are you a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness? Has He changed you from the inside out, from the heart to the lips? Has Jesus Christ done a great work? If He has not, be a great time to see this is that great salvation being described in the Hebrews. That you're sinning every day, but Jesus Christ can make a way. And He's done so through the cross. Would you trust in Him, you who are lost? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we come before you, Lord, and thank you for the reality of this text. And thank you for the truthfulness of this text, that we may believe every word. And Lord, I ask that if if misrepresented anything, that you would strike it from the minds of those who hear. Lord, in order that you would be glorified and exalted uh, through the truth of your word, as far as sinful man can preach it and proclaim it. Lord, we just ask that you be worshipped today, and not only today, but every day hereafter, Lord, that you would be worshipped until Christ returns. God, would you make us to walk in uprightness? Would you cause us to forsake sin? Would you cause us to grow in knowledge of who you are and what you have done? We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Lord, and we ask that you would bless our fellowship to come. Lord, that you would bless the food and the nourishment uh, unto our bodies. Lord, that we may live as those who are uh, truly a living sacrifice. Lord, may you this day just bless the food, if not for any other reason than that we would serve you, O God, and that we would proclaim your name until our dying day. In Jesus' name, amen.